Diet Black Podcast is a podcast about true crime, punk rock and gothic music, TV shows and movies, pretty much anything creepy or weird that we decide to discuss. It may contain graphic content, vulgar language, and suggestive themes that may be triggering and or inappropriate for some listeners. Let's be honest, it's gonna contain vulgar language. Now all opinions are just that, they're opinions. We are not scholars lawyers or historians, and by no means do we claim to be experts. And the information that we obtain comes from the internet, and we have no proof that it's fact. So thank you, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Diet Black Podcast. Hey, that's us. That is us. I'm Liam. I'm Tam. And we are here to provide you some entertainment. It might be a little little late, two days late, but we have good reason. We have been entertaining the entire goddamn world this week. Um, and by that, I mean, it was Christmas, it was Hanukkah, it was my birthday, and Tuesday night... We had all of our friends come out, and we had a... Yeah, we went into the city, and it was a nice dinner that turned into... Many drinks. And lots of fun. (laughs) Yeah, so it was great. We basically had a lot of places to ourselves, because nobody was out for Christmas Eve. And so we had a group of about, I'd say 10 to 12 people, maybe up to 15 people, kind of pub crawling and <laughs> at one pub <laughs> well we went to one pub for dinner and then we went to another. we walked to the other one which is like our favorite yeah it's our home bar we stayed there for hours well you know it helps that there's nobody else out and we know the bartender and we were just hanging out and drinking and he was taking good care of us so mm-hmm. we all had a good time um and i was very gratified that my friends actually came out on christmas eve to celebrate my birthday so Yay, thank you, friends. Um, Then the next night, of course, was Christmas. And us being dumbasses that we are, we're like, oh, we've got a new house. We'll host this year. Yeah, I mean, it went well. It's just the stress building up to it. Was ridiculous. And lots of, like, last-minute people showing up, which was fine. Everybody seemed to be comfortable. and Yeah, I mean, we've gotten really good feedback from the family and said it was one of the best holiday dinners we've had. But... It went from us thinking, oh, okay, maybe 15 people to over 20 people. We had a turkey. We had a ham. We had all sorts of crazy sides. We had people showing up out of nowhere. I made, like, two extra hors d'oeuvres that we didn't say we were doing, and I'm glad we did because they ate it all. Yeah. I did not get one meatball. I did not get a meatball either. I got, like, maybe one chip with a dip that I made. Yeah. And then there was no cheesecake to be had. Yeah, he made this beautiful peppermint cheesecake, and I never even saw it. No, because once I started slicing into it, it was like, there's cheesecake? Oh, cheesecake. And I have to say that my parents, nor my family, got me a birthday cake, but my friends did on the 24th. Mm-hmm. And that shows you who really cares. <laughs> but... That was the source of our exhaustion, and so, you know, obviously, Wednesday night that was happening, we couldn't record. Yesterday being Thursday, neither one of us had any functionality left. Yeah, Wednesday after everybody left, I took a muscle relaxer, and I was completely out yesterday. I could, I mean, I couldn't do anything. My back felt great. 
<laughs> I had to go to work, but I was basically a barely functioning zombie all day. So after getting some sleep last night, one more day of work today, it is Friday night, and I am ready to be here with you. Yes. Um, I want to give a shout out. I was just checking our platform. We've got a total of 240 listeners between listens between all of our podcasts, so we're getting there. Yeah, we're slowly creeping up, and we've got some new um, followers on our Facebook. Like, we are well up over 100 there and well up over 100 on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So, you know, keep on listening, tell your friends, and reach out to us, because we love to hear from you guys. And every time we hear from our friends, we're happy to know that they like it but we want to know who else is listening um and of course give us a like give us a rating give us a review because that's how other people find us right and so and we do take heed and listen to our listeners um tonight's story was suggested by one of our listeners and also i've got a story afterwards if we have time so we're gonna go true crime and then, depending on the time, I've got a nice little haunting story for you. I think we'll be able to handle it. Yeah. We're going to get that there. Yeah. But right. um, It's your turn. Fire away. So, yeah. This story was brought to us by my friend's mother. After we had done the Starved Rock episode, she was like, oh, that reminds me of the Grime Sisters. And I was like, Grime Sisters? Who are they? And she's like, never heard of them. Yeah. And she told us the story about these two sisters who'd gone missing back in the 50s. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. I'll research it. Yeah, I've never even heard of this story. She's done all the research. So this is going to be my first time listening to the story along with you. And here's the coolest, most weird part of the whole thing before I actually even get into the story. I've been researching this for about two weeks. And I wanted to do right by it. So I was going through a lot of old articles. And the biggest article that I could find was this expose in the Chicago Reader that was done in 1997. And I happened to look at the byline who wrote it, and it was written by someone named Tamara Schaefer. First of all, you know, another Tamara, Tamara piqued my interest. And then I went, wait a minute, I have a tenant named Tamara Schaefer, and she does magazine articles every now and then freelance. Could that possibly be the same person? How weird would that be? So, of course, me being the intrepid journalist that I felt (laughs) that I was this week, I gave her a call yesterday and said, Hey, um, got a weird question for you. Can you stop by my office when you get a chance? Not only did she come down, but we sat and we chatted for a good hour because... Not only did she write the article for the reader, she wrote a book on the subject. So she is, like, the foremost, like, written expert about this case and just happens to be somebody I knew and had... What a small world. I know, right? So, like, somebody I could just sit down and chat with. So, again, thank you to Tamara Schaefer. Her book is called Murder Gone Cold, The Mystery of the Grime Sisters, She did the article in 1997. The book came out in 2006. And she's really supportive of this. She's really happy we're doing it. And Mm -hmm. I really am honored that she took the time to sit down and talk to me about it. Did she say where you can find the book if you're interested in it? um, She just said to look for it online. Um, She only had one copy left. 
which I actually have in my possession right now. She lent it to me, which, again, super sweet of her. Yeah, um, but I believe that if you look for it online, you can find it and purchase it. Yeah, I think we should probably from Amazon. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so again, Murder Gone <clears throat> Cold, The Mystery of the Grime Sisters by Tamara Schaefer. Um, but this is the story of the Grime Sisters. Yeah, and I want to apologize ahead of time. We had beautiful weather for Christmas, like damn near 60, which I felt like I was back home in Florida. We are outside in like t-shirts, smoking and hanging out with our friends. And now it's fucking 30, so I am super dry, so I apologize for any frog clearing that occurs, <laughs> but it's not, you know. It's not something we can help, so. No. At least I don't have a cold. Yes. Knock on for Micah. For Micah! <laughs> but <laughs> this is the story of the Grimes sisters. And the reason we're bringing this up now also is because it happened this time of year. Tomorrow's the anniversary, isn't it? Yes. So three days after Christmas in 1956, Patricia and Barbara Grimes begged their mom to let them go to the movies. They were 15 and 13 years old, and they had the biggest obsession with the only man that mattered to teenage girls of the time, Elvis Presley. Oh, yeah. His new movie, Love Me Tender, was playing at the Brighton Theater just a mile and a half from their home in McKinley Park on the far south side of Chicago. McKinley Park, okay. And they were going to go watch the movie for the 11th time. Wow. But, you know, that's how teenage girls are. You get obsessed with something, you just inhale it over yeah. and over again. You know, it's like kids watching Disney movies over and over again. Or when I was that age, watching Stand By Me or... The Lost Boys. Which, yeah, I've seen a hundred times. I think I've seen Labyrinth with David Bowie. Yeah. An exponential amount of times. Exactly. I could never... I can quote it line for line. Exactly. Because when you're a kid, that's what you do. You get your teeth into something, and you and just you watch it. it over and yeah. over again. And so they wanted to go see Love Me Tender again. And their mom was like, yeah, that's cool. Um, you know where the theater is, obviously. So she gave them $2.50 for movie tickets, popcorn, and bus fare. Damn! I know. It was 1956. That covered all of it. Wow. <laughs> they were seen at the theater for the first screening of the movie, which was at 7.30. They were then seen getting popcorn during intermission, and then paid to see the second screening of the movie that night. So they stayed for two showings. She... And they actually paid for the second <clears throat> show because they're good girls. Oh, well, it was the 50s. <laughs> exactly. But at 11.45 p.m., they were supposed to be home. And when they hadn't gotten off the bus by midnight, their mother, Loretta Grimes, sent their older sister and brother to find them at the bus stop. Three more buses went by, and no Patricia and no Barbara. Loretta knew then that something was wrong, and by 2.45 in the morning on December 29th, she called the Chicago Police Department to report her girls missing. This launched one of the largest missing persons cases in the history of Cook County. Wow. A task force was formed to search for the, the area in and around Brighton Park. A citywide search for the girls was quickly initiated, to which hundreds of police officers were su subsequently assigned full-time. Cook County officers were 
assisted by colleagues from surrounding suburbs, and a task force devoted solely to locating the sisters was formed. With the ground search initiated on December 29th, being bolstered by hundreds of local volunteers. Police conducted door-to-door -door canvassing throughout Brighton Park, and numerous canals and rivers were dredged. In addition, more than 15,000 flyers were distributed to local homes, and parishioners of the Sisters Church offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to their whereabouts. As a result of this coordinated investigation, 300,000 people would be questioned, with some 2,000 individuals suspected subjected to serious interrogation pertaining to their potential culpability. Although the two arrests and charges brought against individuals who confessed the crime sub subsequently collapsed, and I will get to them later. But so despite police efforts and an extensive media appeals producing many reported sightings of the girls, little and any way of hard evidence was yield, although several teenagers who had been at the Brighton Theater that night on December 28th did inform investigators that they had seen the girls conversing with and then entering the car of driven by a young man whose physical appearance had been that similar to Elvis Presley. The vehicle described by these witnesses was consistently described as being a Mercury model. So are they saying that Elvis was like the 1950s R. Kelly? <laughs> They're not saying it was Elvis. They're saying he <clears throat> looked like Elvis. And these were girls who were obsessed with Elvis. I mean, it's not like he didn't I, I, marry um, Priscilla when she was super young, but we're not going to get into that. Not, I, I know I'm making terribly light of this story, but... I, no, I know. That's what you're here for. My brain just, it back. My brain just went right to you. What? Well, it's not like Chicago doesn't have a history of pop stars doing dirty deeds. Or <clears throat> Kelly. <laughs> but... Um, prior to the implementation of the task force, and despite protests from the girls' parents... Several investigators initially assigned the case theorized the girls had either run away from home or were voluntarily staying with boyfriends. In the 1950s? Yeah. Oh. Although the sisters were front page news by December 31st, their disappearance would only be seriously considered as missing persons case and thus appropriately treated as such by investigators after approximately one week had passed without family, or friends receiving any form of contact from the girls. See, that's the problem. Back then, there was no first 48. They mm -hmm. just didn't give a shit. They are like, oh, they probably ran away. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like... Sorry, I'm getting attacked by a small child. Um, furry, furry child. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that was... In most cases, if a teenager disappeared, that was always the police's gut reaction was, eh, they wandered off, they'll be back. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, that you... They didn't, the first instinct wasn't like, oh my god, they've been kidnapped. It's like, eh, they're kids. They fucking bolted for some stupid shit. Yeah. Which and is sad, and that's how most of these disappearances occurred. It's because nobody took Nobody it looked for a while. No. Um, but numerous alleged sightings of the sisters would be reported to police as late as January 9th, and these reports were often described one or both of the girls as having been seen in various business establishments. These sightings supported several investigators' initial theories that the girls had opted to leave on their own accord. Theories also abounded that the sisters may have possibly traveled to Nashville, Tennessee to see Presley in concert, 
I can or, only imagine somebody's just like, oh, this is this is my in. I'm gonna I'm gonna like they were obsessed with take Presley. these little fans and and yeah <clears throat> have my uh, way with them and then they got mad and things got complicated. Yeah, so they thought maybe they went to Nashville or maybe they just left home of their own volition as a means of emulating Presley's lifestyle, but. In the event that her daughters had actually been kidnapped, Loretta Grimes publicly pleaded, if someone is holding them, please let the girls call me, adding, I'll forgive them from the bottom of my heart. Soon after the disappearance, Loretta Grimes actually started to receive ransom notes. She was told to be at a church in downtown Milwaukee on January 12th, and she traveled up there, and she sat alone in a church... And she put a bundle of $1,000 down on the pew next to her. Barbara was supposed to come out and collect the money for the kidnappers and then return with her sister. Sadly, nothing came of it. And the letters were later discovered to have come from an institutionalized mental patient. So there was no way that there was any validity behind it. It was just some guy messing with them. So on January 19, 1957... An official statement was issued from Presley's Graceland Estate. This televised statement read, If you're a good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Presley is also known to have made a direct radio plea to the Grimes sisters, employing that the girls return home to their mother. So it got all the way to Elvis himself, who got involved in the case. But unfortunately, it was not that easy. Instead, on January 22nd, 1957, a man named Leonard Prescott was driving to Willow Springs to buy groceries. But he spotted two pale, nude bodies that he thought were mannequins. And if anybody listens to any true crime, you know it's never a mannequin. Wait, Willow Springs, we've been there. Yes, yes, we have. Yes, we have. (laughs) Ashbury Coffee House. Exactly. By the way, want some entertainment down there? Yeah. Great place. Yeah. Um, so he went home and he got his wife to come back and take a look at this, these mannequins with him. But um, she passed out and he ended up having to carry oh, his wife back to the car because those two pale nude bodies were those of Patricia and Barbara Fuck. Grimes. So he called the police. Well, yeah. Barbara Grimes lay on her left side, her legs drawn up slightly. Her head was covered by the body of her sister, who lay on her back with her head turned severely to the right. On the scene were Sheriff Joseph Lohman, Under Sheriff Thomas Brennan, and Harry Gloss, an aggressive chief investigator for Coroner Walter McCarran. What? Why are we? Why are we chuckling? Harry Gloss. <laughs> it's like when you put on lip gloss and your hair gets stuck in your lips. Any any girl who if it fits TV sits. Is she in a box? Yeah. Aw. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, we have cats. They're entertaining. <laughs> so the three men <clears throat> surmised that the bodies had been laying on the road for several days. Oh, my God. Hidden by the heavy snowfall on January 9th and preserved by the temperatures that plummeted to zero the night of the 10th. Oh, Chicago. So, so, yeah, they'd been there for a good couple of weeks. Yeah, we might have had a mild Christmas, but... We know what we're in for. Yeah. So to this day, no one knows how Barbara and Patricia Grimes ended up in that gully. There were so many theories, so many suspects that were questioned and ultimately released. Not even those in charge of investigating the case could agree with what happened to them the night they disappeared. 
and in the following weeks. Now, there were a series of suspects, and I'm going to go through them, but the main suspect at the time was a man named Benny Bedwell. Edward Lee Benny Bedwell was a 21-year-old semi-literate drifter, originally from Tennessee, who had been evicted from his family's East Garfield Park home in November of 1956, and in the weeks preceding the Grimes sisters' murder, had occasionally earned money by working as a part-time dishwasher in a Chicago Skid Row restaurant. I thought you were going to say a part-time street boy, but... No, no. I mean... I mean, he maybe that too, but... Um, I look like Elvis. I'll blow you right. Well, they said he did look like Elvis. <laughs> we're getting to that. Love me tender. Love me true. Sponge um, all over my face. The, <laughs> the next sentence is, Benwell was a tall individual who allegedly bore a strong resemblance to Elvis Presley. <laughs> He's all sugar. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, According to John and Minnie Duros, the owners of the restaurant where Bedwell had been employed, he and another young male had been at their premises in the company of two girls who physically resembled the Grimes sisters in the early morning of December 30th. The Duroses conveyed this information to the police on January 24th. Bedwell was arrested thereafter and subject to interrogation for three days. Initially... Bedwell was insistent that John and Minnie Duros had a patron named Renee Eccles who had corroborated the Duros eyewitness statements. And they they were mistaken in their identification of the girls because he had been that he had been in the company of on December thirtieth. Although he was formally charged with the sisters' murders on January twenty seventh, nineteen fifty seven, having signed a fourteen page confession in which he claimed that he and a 28-year-old accomplice of his named William Cole Willingham had indeed been in the company of the Grimes sisters on December 30th, having also retained their company until January 7th, typically drinking in various West Madison Street Skid Row saloons. According to Bedwell, after several days in the girls' willing company, shortly after he and his companion had fed the sisters hot dogs, They had extensively beaten both girls before throwing their nude bodies into the snow-filled ditch when both sisters had refuted their sexual advances. So they got them naked, and then they just refused. Apparently. After hot dogs. And who refuses sex after hot dogs? Uh, Pretty much anybody, because you got the terrible shits. (laughs) I love a good Chicago dog, but you throw that sport pepper on there, you're going to be shitting for days. Yeah, nobody wants to have sex after that. Oh, hell no. So, upon reading Bedwell's confession, Loretta Grimes was quoted upon as saying, it's a lie, my girls wouldn't be on West Madison Street. They don't even know where that is. Fair. Girl, I don't even know her. (laughs) I don't even know her. I don't know where she been, where she at. That ain't my so kid. So Willingham the... admitted that he had been in the company of Bedwell and two girls in the early hours of December 30th, but denied that the girls had been the Grimes sisters. He also empathetically denied that any involvement in the murders. Bedwell himself would later recant this confession that he had provided to the investigator, stating that he had only provided a confession after being held in custody for four days in the mistaken belief that the police would subsequently release him if he did so. Yeah. 
just to table this for two seconds, mm -hmm. your cat just ate a dead spider. Well, I mean, protein? Yeah, all right. All right, that's fair. <laughs> um, he is a kitten. He is a kitten. The autopsy reports upon both girls also supported Bedwell's recantation as no alcohol or hot dogs were found in the victim's <laughs> blood or digestion systems. So they did not have the hot dog shits. That's fair. But, yep. Um, furthermore, <clears throat> the girls had not been beaten to death. Bedwell is also known to have clocked in at Ajax Consolidated Company, his place of employment, from 4.19pm on December 28th to 12.30am on December 29th, covering the time of the period that the sisters most likely abduction. So he was at work when they disappeared. Not guilty. So with further records confirming that Bedwell had been working in Cicero on the date he claimed to have murdered them. So on February 6th, Bedwell was freed on a $20,000 bond paid for by an individual from Champaign. Not sure who that was. The same year of his acquittal, Bedwell would be tried and acquitted of a 1956 rape of a 13-year-old girl in Oak Hill, Florida. What? Wait, 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 wait. So he, he was also charged... He was charged with the rape of a 13-year-old girl in Florida. He went down there and... The hearing was held, but he was not found guilty of that either. But he was in suspicion of it. He was in suspicion of it. Huh. He died in November of 1972. Well, that was quite a while ago. Yes. Now, Max Fleeg was the next suspect. Fleeg. Fleeg. Max Fleeg was a 17-year-old suspect in the sisters' murders, initially considered one of the prime suspects due to his age. Fleeg was protected by contemporary, contemporary Illinois laws, which prevented juveniles from subjection to polygraph tests. Nevertheless, Chicago Police Captain Ralph Pettigrew persuaded the teenager to submit to an unofficial polygraph <coughs> test, which the teenager voluntarily took. In the course of this unofficial test, Fleeg allegedly confessed to the murders, but with no legal means of using the test as evidence against him, police were forced to release him without charge. In addition, police were unable to charge Fleeg with the murders due to there being a lack of physical evidence corroborating his unofficial polygraph confession that he had kidnapped and subsequently killed the sisters. Fleeg was later jailed for an unrelated murder of another young woman. So, well, yeah. so much. he's another winner, but didn't do it. Walter Krantz, he was a 53-year-old steam fitter and self-proclaimed psychic. Oh, okay. He phoned a switchboard operator in Chicago Central Police Complaint Room on January 15th to inform the operator of his conviction that both sisters were deceased and their bodies would be found in an unincorporated area in Lyons Township. Kranz refused to disclose his name to the operator in this phone call, simply stating that he had experienced this revelation in a dream before terminating the call. Nevertheless, the operator was able to trace the call to a location close to his home. The park described by Kranz in his telephone call 
would prove to be approximately one mile from the true location where the girls' bodies would be found just a week later. Wow. When Krantz informed police that several members of his family and ancestors possessed psychic powers and that he had experienced this particular vision after a night of heavy drinking. I mean, that's usually when I have some crazy shit going on. Well, <coughs> but he I mean, knew some that's shit. the thing. Don't share your psychic abilities in the 50s because you're going to get tried. They're going to try to pin your ass. Exactly. So, although initially considered by police to be their number one suspect in the murders, and with handwriting experts also determining that he may have written the ransom notes received by the girl's mother prior to the discovery of the girl's bodies, Krantz denied any involvement in the abduction and murder. After being subjected to multiple interrogations, he was also released. Wow. But, in recent years, a new detective has picked up the case. Raymond Johnson is a retired cop from West Chicago, and has become the foremost expert in the case. He has been researching a book on the history of crime in Chicago and had made some connections between the Grimes sisters' case and another case, the, the September 1958 murder of Bonnie Lee Scott. She had been murdered by Charles Leroy Melquist, a 23-year-old, again, with similar features to that of Elvis. Um, following the discovery of Scott's body, similarities to the Grimes sisters had been noted. She was found nude and decapitated, though he was never questioned in the Grimes murders, but the day of the body of Bonnie Lee Scott was discovered, Loretta Grimes had received a phone call from an individual who on this occasion claimed responsibility for Scott's murder. So Scott's murderer called the mother of the Grimes sisters and said, I've committed another perfect crime. This is another one those cops won't solve, and they're not going to. They're going to affix the blame to Bedwell or to Barry Cook. Yeah, he had that straight-up BTK cockiness. Mm-hmm. Loretta Grimes would remain adamant to her until her death that this caller had been the same individual who had contacted her in May of 1957 and had revealed a deformity that one of her daughter's feet had which would never been released to the press or the public. Oh, wow. So what he had told her was that her daughter's toes had been crossed, which is not, not something you not would somebody release. anybody would know otherwise. <clears throat> yeah, you wouldn't release that unless you're a fucking freak. Exactly. And Loretta Grimes to this, too, until her death, always said, I will never forget that voice. But Charles Malquist was never charged with his alleged involvement in the deaths of the Grimes sisters, and he died in 2010. So. Wow. That's just. That's it. I am like, mind blown. Yeah. Reed Johnson is actually still on the case. He's still researching it. There is a Facebook group that I have joined that is searching for information on this case, but unfortunately, almost everybody involved has died. Well, yeah, because it's so old. Exactly. So it's it's unlikely that they're going to find out what really happened to them. But it is one of the longest unsolved cases in Chicago history, and it's one that still leaves so many questions and... Well, yeah, it's, it's so old that, like, all the suspects are dead. 
there's really no real way to solve the case and that sucks I mean wow yeah so that's the story of the Grime sisters I am mind blown and there's actually some other cases that are said to be similar to these and I'll get to those at another time yeah but this was a big one for Chicago um, that's why women of a certain age remember it so clearly because um, Tamara Schaefer, she lived in McKinley Park when this happened. She knew the girls. That's why she wrote this book. Wow. And Marianne knew of it because she was the same age at this time. And she was scared to go out, too, because, you know, nobody knew what happened to him and nobody knew who was going to be next. So. I mean, that, yeah. That's that's pretty intense. So that that that's my story. Wow. <clears throat> well, we're gonna segue into something similarly dark. Give me some dark. This is the darkest days of the year. Dark. So. I am going to tell you a haunting story of a house that is located in my hometown where I was born and raised most of the time. <laughs> uh, this this takes place in West Palm Beach, Florida. So let's start this bad boy out. This is the story of the Riddle House. Now, if you're a fan of ghost adventures you may have seen this particular episode which aired on season four i believe um but so i'm gonna go into my backstory and attachment to the house uh before i get into more info on the story so in the late 1990s probably early 2000s like 2000 okay okay uh, my first girlfriend's one of my first girlfriend's families uh, ran a pest control company that had a contract for the fairgrounds. So we've got this huge South Florida fairgrounds. It's fairgrounds. There's a little village which this takes place in that's on the fairgrounds. There's also, at the time, it was a Coral Sky Amphitheater. I don't know what it's called now, but it's this huge complex where they do a ton of stuff, right? So um, she had asked me to come see her at work one day. Um, when she was spraying the fairgrounds. So I did. Um, it was... So it was the day they took care of all the buildings in yesteryear village. So they did it section by section. Okay. And so yesteryear village is a concentration of either old houses from the early downtown era... Or places that have been recreated from areas like Lake Worth or um, Port St. Lucie. They kind of like melded it into this one place where you can see all these buildings. So there's like a building that was an old schoolhouse. And then okay. they have a building that's an old church. See, that's cool. I'd go see that. But yeah, it's really fucking cool. But I'm there as like the sunlight's going down. Mm-hmm walking around by ourselves with one security guard in a golf cart spraying these buildings. Was there a van with some kids and a large dog by any chance? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we started going around the village, um, and I got to see the buildings. 
I had never been to that section of the fairgrounds before and was both interested and frightened. So I'd always gone there, like South Florida Fairgrounds, that was a place where you went, like I was in show choir, so we performed there a lot and I would take the rest of the day and ride some rides and have a good time. Um, but having been sensitive since an early age, I often felt activity long before people told me about it. Okay. So this is a, a concentration of very old buildings that all have history. So I already knew that what I was getting into, I wasn't too happy about. I didn't realize when she asked me to come see her at work that we were going to do this. And I'm like, I am not prepared. I yes. don't want to do this. However, I did. So there was a church on the property that scared the shit out of me. Oh, I mean, I, I went into it, but I still went in. Mm -hmm. And then as we came out of the building and approached the next building. So if you're looking at the church, there's another building to the right so this is where we went next. I stopped dead in my tracks. So all of the buildings so far I had gone into and walked with her and saw everything, checked stuff out while she was spraying. But I looked up at the building and I told her, I'm like, I'm not going in there. It's not happening. There's something <laughs> about that fucking house that I am not interested in. So she laughed and told me it was notoriously haunted. Well, well of course. Yeah. So I thought about the house off and on for a few year, few days, and then eventually it dwindled down to once a year or so until someone talked about the fairgrounds. Then the fear kind of rose up in me again. I'm like, this house I did not like. I still do not like. Fuck that house. <laughs> and then on November 7, 2008, one of my favorite shows at the time. Now, when I say this is my favorite show, I like them because they get in-depth into the story. I do not like the way that the main character in the show approaches the dead. To me, it's very disrespectful. Zach. Yeah. Zach Baggins. Mr. Baggins. So they aired a visit to that house. So Zach and the boys of Ghost Adventures. Um, I'll admit that I never took Havley to the way again. Like, yeah. they talked to the spirits on the show. Honestly, it bothered me. But it was maybe for the reason more interested some of the other TV shows at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the first and longest, like, running of the, like, paranormal investigation shows. Well, I had watched a lot of Ghost Hunters before that, yeah. and I liked that, because they were very... They took in the history into account, but they were also very respectful. Then Ghost Adventures comes in with, like, it was like a punch-to-the-gut kind of ghost show. But they knew what their well, audience Well, it's that dude-bro mentality, like, they... Should be all going, oh, yeah, we're extreme and drinking monster and, like... Yeah, they're, they're verbally violating ghosts, and you want to see them get their asses kicked. And there's always the one guy that they, like, torture and send him into, like, the most haunted parts just because he's the big doofy guy and... Yeah. You know, I mean... It's a... It's, it's a it, model. Yeah. It's, it's how they handle it, but... You know, at the same time, you're getting to see some really cool stuff. Yeah. So either way, that was it. That was the validity that I needed to know that what I was feeling was valid. Yeah. Right? So I really did feel something. And it wasn't, and I was about to hear the story of what or rather whom was making me uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. So they get into the story, and I do remember there was like a psychic that came in, walked the house, and told them a bunch of stuff. So... 
it was really interesting. There was actually filming of them having stuff thrown at them from down the staircase oh, that wow. went up into the attic, which was very quintessential to all the stories that came thereafter. Like when they were renovating and doing things, this is what would happen to people who were doing stuff in the house. So, of course, they were talking shit the whole time. But I'm going to go into the story of the house so you kind of understand why. Yeah, no, tell me. I'm intrigued. All right. So this is ba- it's basically about the now infamous Riddle House. With its, it is now on, uh, in its permanent home yeah. in Yesteryear Village, and it is on display. So it's basically Yesteryear Village. I'm saying the B, the B world again, Marianne. Um, in a history park located on the South Florida Fairgrounds, which we have talked about. So mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is. It's kind of like a walk through history. Uh, the Riddle House was built in 1905 to serve a, as a mortuary and home for cemetery workers. Uh, the city wanted to cut down on grave robbing in the adjacent Woodlawn Cemetery, so they funded the project to build the house. The house's location earned its nickname as the Gatekeeper's Cottage, since it was right there. Are you the Gatekeeper? I am the Keymaster. <laughs> <laughs> So there are a few ghost stories about the house. Um, It's either attached to the cemetery. Those aren't ghosts. Those are cats. Yeah. Uh. Which is very hard to tell the difference in the middle of the night, by the way. So one involvement, a ghost of an old cemetery worker named Buck, who was reportedly killed during an argument in town. His restless spirit is said to have returned to wander the cemetery grounds and the house itself. He was never perceived as vengeful, he was simply going about his work in the afterlife. So the reports are they would go there at night and see him wandering around on the porch or throughout the house, basically doing things that he would have done just all the time. Oh, yeah. He had unfinished business. So in 1920, Carl... Carl. Carl Ritter, Riddle. Blah, 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 Carl Riddle became West Palm Beach's first city manager and superintendent of the public works. Carl and his family needed a place to live. The city needed someone to oversee the cemetery. Boom! It's an offer he couldn't resist. Free house, job, done. I still want to call him Tom Riddle. (laughs) So Carl, that kills people. (laughs) So he soon moved into the building with his family, and he converted the house into his private residence and took over the role of overseer of Woodlawn Cemetery. So for you Fallout fans... We all know he could have worked for Voltec. Oh. oh. So Overseer Riddle soon realized that something wasn't right with this here house and began to log his experiences in a journal, which there are still pages that you can read. I just couldn't find them online. I was okay. a little disappointed. Um, so it was during Riddle's time in the house when tragedy occurred. No, not tragedy. Tragedy. This is This is how ghost stories happen, folks. This is true. So apparently one of the groundskeepers was experiencing some money issues. And one version of the story says that money came up missing and he was blamed for it. There was this huge argument that was taking place on the first floor of the house between the overseer and some of prominent members of the community as far as where the money went, what happened. He apparently overheard it, realized that he was going to take the blame for it, and seeing no way out, 
he entered the home and hung himself in the attic from the rafters. Oops. Yeah. So, news began to spread about the dark events at the Riddle house, and the Riddle family struggled to maintain employees. Hired help reportedly heard and saw strange things, became frightened, and abruptly quit. The report ranges from chains dragging along the floors, apparitions lurking in the shadows, and voices murmuring where no one was present. The eerie encounters cemented the Riddle House's sinister reputation. Sinister. (laughs) So after Riddle and his family moved out of the home, several businesses attempted to take over the property. Many reported supernatural episodes like Riddle's own tale, and none of them lasted. It even served as a dormitory for Palm Beach Atlantic College, which is a very Christian university (laughs) in the 1980s, but it didn't last either. So if you know anything about West Palm Beach or like downtown West Palm Beach, there is Palm Beach Atlantic. And it's a very unique campus in the fact that it takes over old buildings and they've also built some new buildings, but it is hardcore Christian. Okay. Like, to the point to where I remember in the late 90s, there I had a friend that was going there that identified as a lesbian and was in conversion classes. Ugh. Yeah. So by 1995, the house was empty and slated for demolition. Then, boom, pow, kablam! John Riddle, Carl's nephew, stepped in with a proposal to save the structure. Oh. He asked that the doomed Riddle house be donated to him. He would then deconstruct it piece by piece and rebuild the home as an exhibition at Yesteryear Village, a history park, again, where replica buildings from the late 1800s to the mid-1900s were displayed. Surprisingly, the city granted his wish, and the Riddle House was moved to the fairgrounds where it was rebuilt in sections. They took apart this house piece by piece, floorboard by floorboard. That is dedication. Yeah, moved it and completely rebuilt it in its new and current location. So yet this change in scenery, it did little to calm its paranormal activity. Honestly, I think that probably rammed it up. Well, yeah, you know, like, they're like, this is our house. We don't know where we are. Things are crazy. I don't know where I'm at. My ghost is still here. Ah. And it triggered the second wave. So workers reported tools being thrown from the attic, ladders knocked over or moved, and windows shattering for no reason. The Got construction a little, like Winchester vibe there, Winchester mm-hmm. Mystery House. The construction crew was sufficiently shaken up over these interruptions, and many believe that any spirits inhabiting the house had moved with it and were none too pleased with the relocation. I mean, that's like quintessential haunting stuff. Anytime you remodel something, yeah. you redo it, you're going to piss things off. You rile up the dead. So today, the Riddle House is one of Florida's most popular haunted hotspots. Visitors report everything from mysterious flashes of light to sightings of hanging torso in the attic window. For those curious to experience the mystery of the Riddle House firsthand, the South Florida Fairground often offers ghost tours throughout the summer and fall. Or you could just watch the Ghost Adventures episode. Dun, dun, dun. So that's it. That is the Riddle House. It is this eerie <clears throat> cave story with an attic yellow house, which I believe that's the original color. 
and it just kind of looms over the fairgrounds. Did you ever go in? Yeah, okay. I did. So after the airing of the show, and once I knew more of what was up at the house, I went to the fair uh, one year when the grounds were open and actually went into the house. Uh, the person that I was dating at the time was like, I'm not fucking going in there. And I was like, no, I need to go. So I went in, I walked the house, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I went up to the second floor, eyed the staircase of the attic, said, I don't think so, (laughs) and just... But it was, for me, it was something that I needed to be like, okay, now I know what it is, now I understand it, and I'm not afraid anymore. Well, yeah, you claimed that. You you made your own peace with it, so that's good. Yeah. So I did that, and that was pretty cool. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. That was my creepy ghost story. I like your creepy ghost story. Creepy ghost story. So we're almost out of time. And it's been a long week, so we are going to say Happy New Year. We yeah. will see you in 2020, and we'll have more stories for you then. Yep. Um, hopefully we'll be recording again on Wednesday or Thursday next week depending on how New Year's Eve goes, but I think knowing us, we'll be in bed before the ball drops. Particularly me. You haven't seen New Year's... I don't think I've seen the ball drop since I've been in Chicago. No, because even before you moved here, when we were still dating, you were asleep before the ball dropped. I remember talking to you that In my defense, I I did work long hours, and I was tired all the time. I'm not arguing, I'm just saying that that seems to be our tradition, so... Yeah, we're going to continue to hang out here in our little... Quiet niche of the world, and... While people on our block continue to party for the holidays. And we will bring you more spooky creepiness in a week. Thank you for listening to us. And I hope you had a great 2019. It's been a crazy year for us. We got married. We honeymooned. We moved. But, you know, I'm wishing all of you a safe and sane 2020. And remember to diet black. Diet black.